Worship in the World is a screen-free worship experience brought to you by Downtown Church. Downtown Church is a community of unfinished people based in Columbia, South Carolina. We believe in asking honest questions while we strive to follow Christ within our own communities, loving people wherever they find themselves on their faith journey. Thank you for being with us today. to serve you and I hope I've served you well oh I've lived a life to join you and now only time will tell take my hand when you are worried take my hand when you're alone take my hand and let me guide you take my hand and lead me home father oh dear father Car to the side of the road Looked at his children with the tears in his eyes Said life is too heavy a load Take my hand when you are worried Take my hand when you're alone Take my hand Let me guide you Take my hand to lead you home Some days I'm struck with sorrow Oh, I need a place to hide And there's nowhere else you can put life Way down deep inside Take my hand, let me guide you Take my hand when you are alone Take my hand and let me guide you Take my hand and lead you home Take my hand when you are worried Take my hand Take my hand, let me guide you Take my hand and lead you home Won't you take my hand Let me guide you Take my hand Take my hand Take my hand. I won't leave you alone. Oh, won't you take my hand? When you are worried, take my, take my hand. Your home. Take my hand. Won't you let me guide you? Take my hand. Yeah. Take my hand. Let us pray. Loving God, we awoke this morning and we give you thanks. But we awoke this morning to the familiar sound of tragedy. For 10 people, God did not awake this morning in Los Angeles. 10 people struck down. 10 people who just wanted to go dancing. God, take our hand. Walk with us. Help us to transform this world in this hour. For God, we know that your intention for us is not death, but it is life and life abundant. Amen. But you now to rise as we sing our first song. Where 
precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light, take my hand. Lord, lead me home. Oh, when my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is all almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call, hold my Precious Lord, lead me home. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on. talking with a church member recently and they were saying how their favorite part of worship was the prayer of admission. Maybe it was an insult at Don and I's preaching, but they were saying that because they like the fact that they don't feel alone in their failures. They don't apologize just by themselves. We apologize as a community because we all mess up. It's something we all have in common and we do it each week to remember that when we all mess up, we all approach the same God who gives us all the same grace. So let us now say the prayer of admission found in your program. Let us pray. Lord, we can be fully honest with you because you fully forgive us. You meet us where we are and show us the way to follow you. We admit that we have hurt others and ourselves. We have not followed your law of love. Glory be to the Father, 
Each week we remember Jesus, our Lord and Savior, on the cross that we put him on. And we remember as he looked out at the crowd who was crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Friends, we still don't know what we are doing, and we are still forgiven, called to forgive. We are loved, called to love. Let us live at peace with God and with one another. Hallelujah. Amen. So today... Holy Interruption is going to come. It comes after the sermon on these weeks with communion. Today, we're continuing our sermon series on what we believe. It's kind of a confirmation for adults curriculum. And before we get to the sermon, we have one announcement about elder nominations. Elders are the people who run our church. We have 12 elders, and they're amazing. And when the four of them roll off after their three-year period, we need more elders. And I was talking with a youth recently about one of our elders, and the youth said, how is she an elder? She's not even old. (laughs) So you don't have to be old to be an elder. You can be. Um, But we encourage you to nominate people on the website. Um, Nominate those who you think would be in good position to lead our church, to navigate us through these wild times in which we live. So our scripture today comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. Hear now God's word for us today. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. The word of God to us, the people of God, thanks be to God. So in 1837, Stephen Decatur Miller, an active Presbyterian and the governor of South Carolina gave a speech. In it, he urged his fellow white citizens to no longer speak of their slave ownership in a whisper or as a national evil Rather, Miller declared that slavery was a God-given national benefit. In 1851, two white members of the Presbyterian Church, serving as justices of the Georgia Supreme Court, cited the Bible, the biblical interpretation of the curse of Noah, in a ruling to uphold black enslavement. This curse was the pro-slavery interpretation from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, when Noah curses Ham's son Canaan into servitude. And the theory states that this curse led to the creation of the black race, which meant that God intended those with dark skin to be lower class servants. And in 1856, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, a professor at Columbia Theological Seminary and a Presbyterian pastor, He preached in a sermon that, quote, slavery was a providential trust that white Christians must preserve and perpetuate because the God-given natural condition of the black Americans was servitude. So yes, 
how we read, interpret, and apply the Bible matters. As Christians, it shapes the way we look at the world. It serves as a compass guiding our actions, helping us to navigate the complexities of our lives and relationships. But as you've seen, this compass can be corrupted. It's easy to manipulate the Bible, this holy book of wisdom, to get you in very hateful directions. If you have an idea of how to oppress or exclude, you can find a scripture to back it. If you want to run a church where women are told they should have no voice, no power, no ordination, you can find those verses. If you want to create a community where divorced mothers are not allowed to participate in communion, you can quote that scripture. And if you want to build a country where hundreds of thousands of human beings are enslaved for the sake of economic profit and greed, then there's a biblical interpretation out there to ease your conscience. But the issue we must confront today is not only what the Bible is, but what shall we do with it? These are the two questions that I'm hoping to ask today in this sermon, and notice I did not say answer. It's impossible to answer all the questions, to address all the intricacies, to unpack the trauma, but today we're going to start. One bite at a time, cracking open the door to take the first step looking hard at this book that for so long we've just been handed and told, read it. But when you read the whole thing, you might be like the church member who says, hey, I've got some questions. I've got some issues. This doesn't always portray the God that I know. So today let's talk about the Bible. And it's a heated topic. Churches and denominations have split over it. They are splitting over it. And my intention is not to attack the Bible or hate it or discredit any beliefs you have surrounding it. I'm not going to discount the verses you have stamped on your soul or tattooed on your skin. My hope is that together we might be curious. My hope is to love God by loving the Bible with our whole hearts, souls, strength, and minds. So what is the Bible? I begin every class of confirmation uh, with an activity where our students look at a variety of depictions of the Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We look at oil paintings from 15th century Italy to Nigerian wood carvings. These high school freshmen examine different ways Christians throughout time and space have represented our triune God. And as they look, I ask one simple question. I say, who can spot the Bible? And no one does. My point being, the Bible is not the fourth Godhead of the Trinity. The Bible is not God. The Bible is not the mysterious entity whom we worship. Thanks be to God for that. But what is it? I mean, literally, the Bible is a collection of letters to people in churches, of poems, of historical documents, family lineages, fables prophecies, war propaganda, often exaggerated, epic biographies of important people, most notably Jesus Christ, and more. And they were compiled from an initial oral history of speeches and plays and then written down in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, since then translated into thousands of languages and spread across the world to tell the story of our God. 
And throughout this whole process, we believe the Holy Spirit was active and involved. And the Bible is diverse, written by different people in different places to create a living and breathing document showing the way that God does and has worked through imperfect and flawed people like us. And while doing so, it even exposes the flawed ways that we, the human authors, try to describe an indescribable God. And you could spend a lifetime studying the Bible. You should sign up for a Bible study with Mary Nichol to unpack more. But for the practical bit of today, I'm less concerned with what the Bible is and more with what we do with it. Because I've seen what people can do with it. It can quickly be distorted from a book to a hammer to pound people into submission to a God who will cast them into hell if they don't change who they love. I've seen it used as a sword, cutting off the hopes and dreams of so many young women who have been told that they cannot go into ministry because of something Paul wrote in a letter 2,000 years ago. I've seen it used as a muzzle, telling our children to be quiet and just obey. Stop asking questions. And we've seen it used as a chain, gripping tight the hands, feet, and necks of thousands who were told, God wants you to be enslaved. It's better that way. Hammers, chains, swords, these are tools, tools of pain. And it makes me think of the words of the prophet Isaiah speaking of God's intent of beating swords into plowshares, of turning spears into pruning hooks, of transforming our tools of destruction to agents of creation. And it got me thinking, what if the tool of the Bible was not a weapon, but a place of growth? a shovel that helped us to dig deep into our faith in the history of humanity with God, a watering can that nourishes our souls and others when we pray to do God's will for us, a shelter where we take cover when we find ourselves like Job, sad, alone, and afraid of what more bad news might show up. What if it was a rope that reaches far beyond our own grasp, connecting us to others and helping us to realize our common humanity and identity in God, our creator? Or a window letting us see into the experiences of different people who encounter the same God? If the Bible is a tool, it's a tool we must wield with caution not to be flung around like a child with a toy lightsaber smacking down the sins of the world, but rather something to be studied, discussed, examined, argued over, and approached with the same care, prayer, and curiosity that went into creating it. Because if we swing around this tool too carelessly, it can lead to hate. For example, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, where Paul writes, women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Clearly, our denomination, our church, led by an amazing pastor, Don High, do not agree with the surface-level reading of this verse. That's for a number of reasons. Because we see Paul's letters as theologically dense, divinely inspired letters sent to specific churches who were dealing with particular problems in a context 2,000 years ago that was wildly patriarchal. Because we see Paul for who he is, he's an incredibly important figure in the history of our faith, 
full of complex theology, but Paul is not God. He has flaws, and he is a preacher affected by his time and place. And we see that his intent with this letter is not to instill law that would be around forever, but to help a specific church grow in a specific time and place. Ultimately, is because we look beyond singular verses. We look beyond to the overarching narrative that the Bible is communicating to us about God and the good news for all people. And when we look beyond this single text, we see a gospel where women walked with Jesus, learned from Jesus. And when the first sign of trouble came for Jesus and when nearly all the men abandoned him, it was the women who stuck around by the cross. It was the women who showed up a day later to anoint his body. And the one thing all four gospels agree on is that women were the first to preach the resurrection. And I say this and use this one example to say this is where our minds come in in reading the Bible critically. We must engage our God-given minds to think creatively, critically, and use our imaginations to ask ourselves, what else can the Bible say? And you can disagree with me here. My hope is not that we all leave here with the same perspective of everything. My hope is to complicate our relationship with the Bible from a limiting perspective of, well, that's what it says, plain and simple, to a generative approach of what else can it say? How else can it speak hope into a hopeless world, speak order into a world of chaos, speak truth in the face of lies, and bring light into our darkness? I recently read a critique of American society, how we have come to value our own experiences too highly. The critique said that we think that our own experience is wholly unique, completely authoritative, and without fault. And I'm guilty of this. And our experiences do matter. But when we only value our own experiences, what this leaves out is space for curiosity and the expansiveness of the other. And I believe the tool of the Bible helps us to realize that our experience of God matters, but so do others. Yes, the way that Dawn connects to God listening to Sean play the sitar, that matters. But so does the way that Elizabeth felt when she heard Mary's song announcing the birth of Jesus. Yes, the way that Michael and John saw God in the wilderness of Colorado, that's important but so is the experience of Hagar and Ishmael who suffered and were rescued in the wilderness. My own call into ministry helps me understand a bit of God, but so do the calls of Esther, of Ruth, of Samuel, of David and Lazarus. The tool of the Bible is a place to learn where humans have excelled in walking alongside God and to witness their utter failure to hear stories of God's fierce judgment and God's radical grace, to see the face of God in the stranger, in the outsider, in the Ethiopian eunuch, the Roman centurion, a housewife named Martha, a tax collector named Zacchaeus, and the cry of a newborn child. It's a place to imagine where our individual small stories fit into this grand story, to see beyond our individual experiences, to engage with the larger experience, the only story that truly matters of God and creation, of the universe and us, of Christ, our Savior, moving towards us 
and selfless love. And I know what some of y'all might be thinking. Aren't we just picking and choosing? And the answer, my answer is yeah, kind of. It's important that we read and know the whole Bible, the good and the bad, the stories of grace, the stories of vengeance, the stories of peace, and the stories of war. But what we do with it, how we interpret it, that's where the whole loving the Lord with our hearts, our souls, our strength, and our mind comes in. It's the contextual wisdom to not just know what is true, but when it is true. And Jesus did this. In the verse today, Jesus did this. He put this wisdom to practice. He picked and he chose. In our scripture today, he was confronted with this question of, what do I need to do, God? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he responds, well, what does the scriptures tell you? What do you read in your Torah? And so the man, pulling from his vast knowledge of the entire first five books of the Hebrew Bible, says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, considering the entire Torah, the scriptures that he knew very well, said, yes, that's the one. Notice that what he pulled from scripture was not the verses of exclusion, of hatred, of fear, of violence, but he pulls from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, saying we must love. We must love God and love our neighbor. My point is that we all manipulate and interpret the Bible, but what do we do it for? Do we do it for ourselves, for power, for greed, to oversimplify a complicated world and an even more complicated God so that we can be the ones who are smart and righteous? Or do we do it selflessly for the purpose of loving God and loving our neighbor? You know, a friend of mine, while talking about my preaching, reminded me that for every sermon I preach, I've got to bring it home, as he says. I've got to conclude in a way that gets us back to the basics, that gets us going, that gives us what we need to know while we walk out the door. And honestly, today, I don't think I can. There's too much in this beautiful book. There's too much to wrap up neatly. Some of the stories are still hard to look at but they're too important to not look at all. So my hope is to start a conversation, one that goes far beyond this hour of worship on a Sunday, a conversation that helps we look, helps us look in the Bible, look deeply, look critically, look creatively for a God who shows up in magnificent ways. So might we look to the stories that challenge us, that comfort us, that are our companion, that challenge us to see the face of God from another perspective, that comfort us in our places of brokenness and pain, that serve as a companion when we sit alone in darkness. Ultimately, we are tasked with sharing, discussing, and embodying the stories that help us to love God and love our neighbor with our hearts, with our souls, with our strength, and with our minds. Amen.
says I'm up to no good again Couldn't make her proud though I did my best I feel like a mess, I feel like I'm stuck in the wrong skin I feel like I'm sick but I'm having trouble swallowing my medicine to the water, wash me clean, I'm still struggling, Sunday, bury me under the weight of who you need me to be, can't you see, I'm struggling, I keep God locked in a picture frame, So I feel a little better about my number days Yeah, I confess The questions and the answers seem to sound the same I'm just like the rest Standing tall pretending not to be afraid Sunday, carry me, carry me down to the water Wash me I'm still struggling Sunday, bury me under the weight of who you need me to be Can't you see, I'm struggling Sunday, come around, lift me up again Never too proud for a helping hand I've been feeling down can you hear me now? Sunday, come around, lift me up again. Never too proud for a helping hand. I've been feeling down. Can you hear me Friends, we come to this table once a month, uh, not just out of habit. Uh, we come to this table because Christ called us to. And this is a table that is unlike any other. It's not owned by a church. It's not controlled by a denomination or by a pastor or by a group of elders. It is ruled by God, by Christ. And there is always room, whether you feel like you've been told you cannot take communion or you are not welcome or you are not loved, know that you can walk to this table you can walk boldly, full of confidence, or you can walk with some hesitation. Just know that you are welcome here. This is Christ's feast, so let us eat. Please join me in the prayer of great thanksgiving as found in your program. 
The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. Let us pray. It is right, God, to give you praise. For you are our God. You created us. You walked with us, God. You walk with us. You listened to us and you listen to us. God, you died for us. When we feel broken and emptied, drained and alone, when we feel like we have nothing left, God, we always have you. So we praise you, joining our voices with the choirs of angels and with all the faithful of every time and place who forever sing to the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we join our voices, God, saying the prayer that your son, Jesus the Christ, taught us, saying together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, we remember on the night that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, would be betrayed, he had a, a dinner party with some of his good friends. And he gave thanks. And after the meal, he took the bread, just ordinary bread, and he broke it. And he said these strange words to his friends gathered. He said, friends, this... This is my body. It is broken for you, for all of you. Whenever you eat from this, remember me. In the same way, he took a cup and he poured out the wine. He said, friends, this cup holds the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins sealed in my blood. Whenever you drink from this cup, remember me. So friends, as often as we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our Christ, until he comes again, and he will come again. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Loving God, may this bread and this wine or juice be nourishment for our bodies and for our souls so that we have the strength and the fortitude and the resilience to do the dirty and demanding work of ministry. It is in Jesus, your son's name we pray, amen.
And I invite you to rise and body your spirit as we sing our final song. I look forward to seeing many of y'all back here tonight for our Remember That Baptism dinner series. It's going to be a real treat. Friends, the Bible is complicated, so let's keep talking about it. Let's keep looking at it. Let's keep praying about it, arguing over it, looking for the ways that we can see God in the face of the stranger, in the other, in the places that we would not expect. And while we do so, may we love God and may we love our neighbor. As we go from this place, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds until we meet again. Friends, go in peace.
you feel compelled to support the church financially, you can give a secure gift online at downtownchurch.me forward slash give.